Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Seminole Maroons, Seminole Freedmen, or Black Seminoles are among the names that describe certain groups with mixed African and Native heritage. The groups are scattered geographically, but maintain ties among themselves and to Seminole origins in the Southeast United States. On Juneteenth, a day devoted to celebrating and learning about the end of slavery, we'll hear from Black Seminoles about their culture and history. That's coming up next on Native America Calling. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A First Nation in Manitoba has proposed a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the Canadian government. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the lawsuit claims Canada is failing to address the housing crisis on reserves. The St. Teresa Point First Nation in northern Manitoba wants the compensation and an order that Ottawa comply with its obligation to provide adequate housing in First Nations communities. The northern community of just over 5,000 is accessible by plane or by ice road for six weeks each year. Chief Eldon Flett says what's happening in his reserve is about broken promises and treaties and the promises made to his people. Most homes on reserve are falling apart and many are infested with mold and other toxins. Our lack of housing on reserve forces generation after generation to cram together under the same roof. Flett says in his community there are more than 460 families that need homes. He says of the nearly 650 houses, about 25% should be condemned because of severe decay and rotting. Others need major repairs. He says it's not uncommon for families of 12 to live in one home. In one house there are 32 people living in four bedrooms. They sleep in shifts. Flett adds that the deplorable housing has mental and physical repercussions, with many living with ailments linked to toxins in the homes. Many children and teens don't have access to personal space. The proposed class action is aimed at the most extreme housing emergencies in First Nations. Flett is inviting other bands to join the lawsuit against the Canadian government. The claim alleges that Canada has deliberately underfunded housing on reserves while at the same time imposed restrictions on their ability to provide housing for themselves. The class action has not yet been certified by a judge. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Dozens of people recently marched on Northwest Montana's Flathead Reservation for Micah Josephine Westwoof, who was hit and killed by a vehicle along Highway 93 earlier this year. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports the walk was part of a week-long effort to draw awareness to the case and others like it. Over three days of events, people from across the Flathead Reservation walked near Highway 93 wearing red shirts, the official color representing the disproportionate number of indigenous people that go missing or are murdered. West Wolf's mother, Carissa Heavyrunner, says the Montana Highway Patrol, which is investigating her daughter's death, hasn't explained why they haven't charged the suspect in the case. It's nothing much has changed, sadly. I'm hoping that after this walk and with the recent articles being released that that's going to change because it's now over two months. She blames jurisdictional confusion over which agency is responsible for investigating crimes. 
Advocates have long said that confusion leads to cases falling through the cracks. Heavy Runner told a crowd gathered in Pablo that has to change as she worries about the younger generation continuing to struggle with this issue. I don't want them to have uh, fear and have to go through life where their classmates or their older cousins or siblings go missing or murdered. Heavy Runner, who lives on the Blackfeet Reservation, called on Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribal leaders and the Blackfeet Tribal Council to push for change at the federal level. She wants funding for special investigative teams dedicated to solving cases on reservations across the country. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort starting June 26th. Early bird registration closes February 25th at tribalselfgov.org. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Groups of freed and fugitive slaves found community alongside Native communities in Florida. These groups would later be known as Seminole Maroons, Seminole Freedmen, or Black Seminoles. And those groups continue to maintain their historical and cultural ties. Some Black Seminoles fought in the Seminole Wars led by notable leaders like John Horse. Others were forcibly removed to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. Still others made their way to Mexico and the Bahamas to evade the threat of enslavement. Today on Juneteenth, we'll speak with black Seminole descendants about their history and identity. Please join the conversation. Are you a black Seminole descendant? Do you know the history of black Seminoles? Share your insights on the air by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a post on any of our social media pages. Joining us first from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, is Anastasia Pittman. She is a former state senator for District 48 in Oklahoma and a general counsel representative for the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. She's also the founder of the Anastasia Pittman Research Institute for Indigenous People of Color. She's a citizen of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. Senator Pittman, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sean, for having me. Absolutely. Speaking with us from Atlanta, Georgia, is Jason Brown. He's an archaeologist and a Seminole Maroon descendant from the Bahamas. Jason, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you for having me as well. And from Miami, Florida, we're joined by Dr. Wallace Tinney. She is project director at the Florida Black Historical Research Project and a Seminole Maroon descendant. Dr. Tinney, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Pleasure to be here. 
Pleasure to have you all. And Jason, I'd like to begin with you today. What's the starting point of Black Seminole identity, and when was the first Black Seminole community formed? Um, I believe the starting point, um, as far as um, you know, just the identity of Maroons itself, it started at the conception of uh, um, when the, Ash- the African diaspora, the minute slaves or uh, those that are from Africa touched ground, they began to resist, and they resist by uh, running off into you know, the wilderness. And as you know, uh, within that, the Native Americans that they were already there, they took them in, whether they uh, they admixed with the uh, with the with the natives in that particular area, pretty much starting from even from north up in Virginia, Maryland area, all the way down as the Carolinas began to develop. You will always find these little clusters. For example, like the Dismal Swamp, you will have like there were uh, maroons up in that area, um, and even over in, in the Caribbean, you will find maroons us. Uh, specifically like Jamaica uh, in areas like that. You know, uh, the Maroon community in uh, Jamaica is very, very heavy. But then the story of resistance has always started. So we're, here we are in Florida. We have Florida, the, the Maroons in Florida, from the time of the development of St. Augustine, it's under, you know, when, when Spain had, the, had Florida under its control, um, but they were always, um, the Spain had always interacted with Af- Africans, especially either with, um, you know, with the slave trade and things like that. But the story of Maroons can also be looked at as far as when conflict took place between countries and wouldn't, you know, and how Maroons, one of the things I want to identify today is how Maroons, a lot of them were, were veterans of war. Whether it was the uh, War of Independence, the War of 1812, a lot of them fought along um, with that. They weren't just runaway slaves. A lot of them were combatants, you know, uh, professional arms. And that skill set played a role in connecting and finding a need for the Seminoles, the, the Native Americans, and the blacks to unite under, under one thing, you know, under, under one agenda. That is to to be free, you know, to to have to be free on land and also be able to trade and do things on their own, you know. So they they fought and they resisted the good old manifest destiny, and and um, a major player in this whole thing, in this whole scheme of thing, the villain in this whole story would be, you know, obviously the United States government, but one particular character would be Andrew Jackson. And uh, especially around um, with him, be, you know, becoming governor of uh, Florida back in 1821, how he he coordinated a series of raids. He had this whole idea of um, he wanted to crush, number one, the relationship with the Seminoles and, you know, Seminoles and, and, and Blacks because of the societies that they had uh, dwelling all throughout Florida from the, you know, from the time he just, you know, just over time, I just, you know, over time, these, these communities, they, they grew, they grew. They had a lot of people. You had a lot of runaways. You had a a lot of free people that came in through um, Spain. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was just an admixture of uh, things, but Andrew Jackson in 1821 decided to, uh, conduct a raid in Florida using uh, 
a uh, he hired he hired William McIntosh. He hired William McIntosh and also Charles Miller, who were who were half uh, half Native American, half European. And um, he used that, you know, you know, if you know know anything about Macintosh, as far as these treaties that took place, that a lot of Native Americans disagreed with, because you know, Macintosh he lined himself up with whites, you know, as far as the whole manifest destiny thing, because you know, um, he was he was pretty much a uh, he was a tool for that, you know, in reference to uh, making sure that manifest destiny was to take place. But these raids took place, and here here's my family down in. In Angola, they 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 thrived down in Angola. Um, it is possibly believed they were once uh, connected with Fort Negro, uh, which was uh, taken over, excuse me, destroyed back in uh, I believe in 1818. Um, so my family, they were they were living and thriving down in um, the Bradenton area along the Manatee River area okay. until these raids came into play. Um, I'm going to be real quick. So my family had to fled to the Bahamas. Um, notable figure is my great, 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 great grandfather, Sammy Lewis, who, uh, which my name is Jason Lewis Brown. Um, so he was a, you know, he was a notable figure um, that fled on canoe. Um, the story has it that on canoe, he, along with other uh, Seminole um Individuals, uh, black sonos of group, about ninety-seven of them, that made them way over to the Bahamas. And, uh, and Jason, I'm sorry, about what year was this that they made this? 18, 1821. 1821. Uh, June, June, eighteen twenty-one. Yeah, they touched okay. down over at Red Bay's, Red Bay's Bahamas, Bahamas, okay. in, in uh, Andros on Andros Island. Now you mentioned Andrew Jackson and uh, eighteen twenty-one, early eighteen hundreds. Now. The Seminole Wars uh, actually consisted of three separate wars that occurred in right. a long period of time, decades. Were the Black Seminoles involved with all of those conflicts throughout that period? All three, yes, all three, yes. That is correct. Um, notable figures like John Horse, um, those figures like that, they played a role, especially John Horse, I believe, I believe around the Second Seminole War. Um, he played a large, he played a strong role, you know, as an interpreter. As a strategist, um, uh, alongside uh, Native Americans. Now, John Horse, he eventually uh, did he join the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma, and then because eventually he went to Mexico, did he not? Yes, if, if I'm not mistaken, as yes, as I told you, yes, he he um, he he uh, eventually made his way over to Mexico, and I believe it's he has descendants over there as well. Maybe someone okay. can speak on that. Yeah, absolutely. So I also want to because. During this early period of Florida history, at least European Florida history, when it was under Spanish rule, the Spaniards, huh. they had a different viewpoint towards slavery than the English did. And did that not play into how the black Seminoles kind of came to evolve there in that, what is now that state of Florida? Uh, yeah. Um, the Spanish saw the black Seminoles as uh, assets as far as holding that area down, because the Spaniards, it was very expensive for them to maintain Florida. That was for one. So they they, they believed that, you know, by using, um, having ties with not only Native Americans, but with blacks, they were able, like Fort Mose, they were able to utilize uh, blacks in holding those, those uh, military locations down while 
other ventures were were being carried out throughout the Caribbean and all you know all over the world. So you know the old saying that you know Spain had places. Spain never you know the sun never set on Spain you know because they had pretty much colonies everywhere. But that was a tool um, of utilizing uh, former slaves or former military those that actually had military training to uh, hold these forts down. Mm. Oh, this is really interesting what we're learning about today. On the line, we have Jason Brown. Uh, Jason, I think I'm going to refer to you as Jason Lewis Brown, if that's okay going forward. How about that? That, that would be an honor. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you are an archaeologist and a Seminole, Seminole Maroon descendant, and uh, your family has roots there in the Bahamas. And uh, we're going to learn more about some of this fascinating history uh, with uh, the Black Seminole people uh they go by different names in, in different contexts and jason is it is it a misnomer to refer to to just use the term black seminal or is that appropriate that's what it, that's what we're known to call ourselves as black seminals um as a whole global globally i think the term maroon maroons uh, so maroon um also comes into a play especially when you talk to those that are down in syria they they use the terminology maroon but all of us um, the resistance and the, the desire for freedom all is the collective theme of it all, you know, um, with okay. that character that comes a pride that's associated with that, having being maroon, being a black, black Seminole. All right, we're going to take a short break here, but anybody who would like to join this conversation, if you have any insights to add to this discussion about black Seminole history, give us a call, one 800 an investigation by ProPublica and High Country News finds tribes in Arizona face insurmountable hurdles to settling water rights claims with the state. We'll hear from tribal officials and the journalists who uncovered the pattern that keeps Arizona tribal citizens from accessing water. That's on the next Native America Calling. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I am Sean Spruce. We're taking a look into Black Seminole identity and history today. We want to hear from our listeners as well. Join our conversation by calling in at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And a reminder, you can listen to today's show and other Native arts, music, health, and public affairs programs by downloading the Native Voice One app from the App Store on your phone or mobile device. We have Jason Lewis Brown on the line. He's an archaeologist and a Seminole Maroon descendant. Jason, before break, you, you shared uh, some really fascinating history and how your people came to, to live in the Bahamas. Tell us a little bit more about the Bahamas and, and the black Seminole people there and the cultural identity that evolved there over the years. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, definitely very, very unique. Um, 
I remember doing some research and one particular um, individual that made contact with the black Seminoles of Red Bay, Red Bay's, which is in uh, Andros Island. Andros Island is, is the biggest island that's in the Bahama chain, Baham, Bahamian chain. So just to have an idea, if you ever look at that chain, it's a very, very uh, large island. Also, it's tiny compared to Andros. But they noticed that they were very distinct. They, you know, they, some of them, they noticed that their features were a little different. Um, and, but they, the, one of the, the main things that they noticed that their, their behaviors, they said that, you know, quote, their behaviors and, and, and uh, traditions tend to be more like Native Americans. So it was, it was such a confusing thing for the guy who ever recorded that particular uh, statement uh, when dealing with uh, making contact with the Red Base, you know, Seminoles uh, over in the Bahamas. Uh, part of the, one of the things that they, they like to participate in was definitely the, the traditions of wood carving, you know, and uh, folklore and uh, and how they lived lived off the land. Um, it was very, very uh, distinct. And even uh, naming and nicknames, you will find uh, the nicknames may be familiar to a lot of uh, Native Americans and even some of the surnames, for example, over in uh, Bowlegs. You will find uh, the name Bowlegs that's over in, uh, in in the Bahamas, and that derives from Billy Bowlegs. Fascinating. Now, were there other Black Seminole communities there in the Caribbean outside of the Bahamas? Oh, oh yes. Oh, um, black They said there's some in uh, Cuba. There's some in Cuba and also Bimini. Yes, in Bimini. Okay. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Oh, good question. That was a very good question. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks a lot, Jason. I'm going to go ahead and move on now to, to Dr. Tinney, who, again, is project director at the Florida Black Historical Research Project and a Seminole Maroon descendant. And Dr. Tinney, we're learning so much uh, about this history here uh, in Florida and also parts of Oklahoma, Mexico, the Bahamas. Can you tell us how widely known is the history of Black Maroons in Florida today? Do people study this in schools? Well, that's a good question. Uh, but based on everything that's going on now, we can assume that there will be that much study of it in school based on the desire to eliminate any material that is not, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> well, the governor has made it clear that he does not want certain materials taught in the schools. So that people will be a little reluctant about teaching it. I don't think that this history has been taught generally in American history, uh, period. You know, I I don't think the idea that Seminoles uh, really included uh, a cross-section of Native Americans, that there was never a group of Native American people called Seminole, that this is a word that derives from the word Cimarron, which is a Spanish word, and it comes, and it was used to refer to the Cimarrones, who were the uh, uh, enslaved people who had freed themselves, emancipated themselves, and, you know, were now living out side of the plantation structure and a free environment. 
and they were called Cimarrones by the Spanish. And eventually, this word became Seminole. And a lot of many of the uh, Florida Seminoles, you know, want to not use that, but it's pretty clear that that is where the word Seminole uh, came from. There was never a Native American group called Seminole. That this group, this is a a a compilation of the Yamasi, the Creek, Africans, mm-hmm. different people uh, who got together here in Florida and set up homesteads and set up their lives here. After and and it's uh, it's a it's a really a very complex and a lot of history erased and ignored in order to tell a particular story and get on with it. And so that it's very difficult. You heard um, Jason as he was trying to tell the story because there is so much to the story that has been left out that you begin to sound as if you are, you know, you don't, you know, you can't tell the story because the story has been so omitted from history that you you only be able to find the story by going back to diaries, journals, the military records, sure, and sure. things like that, and then you can piece together the story of, you know, what happened here. Dr. Tinney, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, the people that we think of now today as the Seminole, that's a, a very modern term, and how they collectively lived in small clusters. They didn't consider themselves Seminole. That's a, a European uh, moniker. But but the Seminole tribe, there is now today, in 2023, there is a Seminole tribe of Florida that was created back oh, yes, in the 1950s. And I want to ask right. you, though, what is yeah. the connection? Is there a connection or is there a relationship now between these descendants, uh, these Black Maroon and Black Seminole descendants who we're talking about today, and this uh, federally recognized Seminole tribe that exists in Florida today? I don't know. Not really. Not any official rec- uh, recognition. We do have friends uh, among the Miccosukee and the uh, the Seminole tribe of Florida individuals, but as a unit and as a uh, uh, an entity, a governmental entity, or an entity, a, tri- a tribal entity, whatever you want to call it. No, there is no official uh, recognition of that sort. Well, tell us more about your work there at the Florida Black Historical Research Project. I imagine that you're working hard to advance this history of Seminole Maroons. Yes. What happened is that my uh, my cousin. Uh, started this organization back in the 1990s, actually 1996. But before that, he and some uh, anthropologists and some uh, local historians in Palm Beach County had worked together to um, make this discovery of or to bring out the fact that one of the major uh, military events happened in an area called next to Loxahatchee River. And so they were able to get that established as a battlefield site. And from that time, uh, my cousin started an annual event uh, to honor the uh, memory of the both the, uh, the military 
and the Native Americans who per- who perished or who fought at that site, uh, Loxahatchee River Battlefield Park in in uh, Jupiter, Florida. So my cousin uh, passed away. He died in 2008, and so from that time we've been holding the annual event. He had established the Florida Black Historical Research Project to do that along with a lot of other things in Palm Beach County. But we we just maintained the event, the annual event honoring, which was which is held in January uh, during the Martin Luther King weekend because there were two days, two battles there called Powell's Battle and uh, Jessup's Battle. And there are historic markers there at the Loxahatchee River Battlefield site in Jupiter for those two military battles. Now, these were, so we, sem- were, were, were these, I'm sorry, Dr. Jim, but did, were these battles part of the Seminole Wars then that you're describing? Yes, the Seminole okay. War battles, yes. Okay, and they you. were called, they're each called, one is called Powell's Battle because he was the uh, military person who uh, led that battle general. Uh, Thomas Jessup was the second. He came in after Powell. Powell was was defeated by the Seminoles because he, he only had a, a maybe 80 men he was fighting with the uh, Seminoles. So Jessup came uh, about 10 days later and uh, he, but he didn't defeat them either. Uh, but they uh, kind of dispersed. And then later, he was able to capture quite a few people under a flag of truce. And uh, and at any rate, each year, we honor that, we commemorate that event and try to uh, pay tribute to the both the soldiers and the, because the soldiers, I mean, they were doing their duty. And uh, well, Dr. Ting, Dr. thank you so much for, for all of this background and uh, these additional historical facts. And I want to pivot now and, and hear from Corina Torelba. She's a black Seminole descendant from Mexico who now resides in Brackettville, Texas. Here she talks about her family's history that is closely tied to the original Juneteenth event. My family then left Florida to Oklahoma during the Trollope Tears and from Oklahoma to Mexico. They were in Oklahoma about eight years and made their way to Mexico um, because they were of African descent. You know, they were always being followed and they were always trying to put them back into slavery. And when they arrived to Mexico in 1850, they kind of went through the same thing there, being that they were so close to Texas. They would have slave catchers or Texas rangers come into Mexico and try to take them back to Texas since slavery still exists in Texas. So they had to move around quite a bit in Mexico as well. And it wasn't until emancipation happened in Texas that they were able to have peace and live freely. You describe your people living there in Texas. Sounds like they were close to the U.S. border. Are are most of the black Seminoles still in that part of Mexico, or have they dispersed into other parts of the country? They have 
this first because uh, Nacimiento Coahuila is a small, like a, it, it was called Nacimiento, La Colonia de los Negros. So it's a very small place. There's still no running water. There's no stores. You have to drive about 30 minutes into the closest city, which is Musquis, Coahuila. There's no work there, so they have to leave. And so that's what a, a lot of them have done. That's what my dad did. And in Nacimiento, uh, Coahuila, it's um, a small community. So it, there's probably about 300 people in that community. But around the little cities in, in Coahuila, you know, we have other, you know, family members that live there, too, that are, you know, Black Seminole descent as well. I do keep in contact with Mexico because my father still lives there. We we have family there. We have land there. So I go pretty often. I also opened up a Casa de la Cultura, Black Seminoles of Nacimiento Coahuila, which is a little room that we've opened up for to help teach our history there because, you know, a lot of the people that live there don't know the history and, and you know, just letting the young kids know who their ancestors were, how brave they were, everything they did, and that they come from brave warriors. Taralba sharing her culture and history as a Black Seminole descendant from Mexico. We've got a caller now listening online in Texas, Jen. Hello, Jen. Okay, not Jen yet. Um, I, I want to go back to uh, to Dr. Tinney now. And Dr. Tinney, hearing uh, this uh, person, Karina, who I spoke with earlier, did a pre-recorded interview. Uh, it just sounds like um, you know some of these Black Seminole folks were really oppressed. And, and you know, first there's a trail of tears, and then down to Mexico, and even to this day. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that legacy of these folks that had to travel all the way, in Jason's case to the Bahamas, and in Karina's case, all the way to, to Mexico? Well, I think actually, um, uh, Karina probably could tell you more, but I can tell you that the problem pretty much exists because they don't have, they at one point, they had dual citizenship, and they don't have the dual citizenship now. And so it makes it very difficult for them to get, there's, there are no jobs and things in that area. So that when, for those people who are living there, it's very difficult for them to make it now, just as it is in Canada and different places where the Native American people are, are living under certain kinds of governmental restrictions that really uh, don't allow them to get to to have full access to proper lifestyles and and it's kind of complicated and I'm not really as familiar with the specifics as I really should be but I do know that it does have a lot to do with some governmental uh, restrictions that keep the people sort of in a situation that is, um, you know, non-functioning in in modern society so that they still have, uh, don't have running water. Some of them don't have indoor toilets. 
killed and that sort of thing. So it's a very difficult situation uh, uh, for those people. But they do have, uh, in Mexico, the Mexican government welcomed them there at, you know, at, at some point. But just as Karina uh, was saying, that these people in this country were still trying to find uh, black-skinned people that they could sell into slavery of any kind of people who couldn't prove that they were not black to sell into slavery. So it made it difficult, you know, Mm -hmm. back in that day, but it's difficult still for them even today. Well, thank you, Dr. Tini. We're going to go ahead and take another break. When we come back, we've got a caller, and we're also going to hear from Senator Anastasia Pittman. And we've got another guest by the name of Wendy Goodlow, who's also going to share some of this history with us. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort in Tulsa, Oklahoma, June 26th to the 29th. Learn how tribes are using self-governance for the delivery of programs and services for their citizens and communities, and how this authority improves the health and well-being of tribal communities. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. Join today's Juneteenth conversation about the history and culture of Black Seminoles. If you have any comments or questions, call us at 1-800-996-2848. And let's take a quick call now. We have Jen, who is listening online in Texas. Hi, Jen. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. As a Cherokee living in East Texas, I have many uh loves um, of history. One of the things I love the most is rock art all over the United States. And I visited the Seminole Canyon in uh, Val Verde, uh, Texas, the, the in Comstock. And it's near the U.S.-Mexico border. And it's like nine miles away. And there are many beautiful pictographs there. You can visit it by Googling the uh, pictographs of Seminole Canyon. But I don't really see much of the actual information like I'm getting today from your archaeologist. I know that many Native Americans, like the Cherokees from East Texas, went into Mexico to avoid uh, the Trail of Tears, and so I totally understand how you got to Mexico. Thank you so much. I'll I'll just hang up and listen. All righty. Well, appreciate you calling in today, Jen. That was Jen listening online in Texas. And uh, I, I want to bring our next guest in the conversation now, and she is joining us from Brackettville, Texas, Wendy Goodlow, who is the secretary of the Seminole Indian Scout Cemetery Association. She is a black Seminole descendant. Wendy, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Now, Wendy, we're learning so much uh, about this history here, some of this culture. Can you share with us uh, some more key features and identifiers of Black Seminole culture? Yes. um, You know, I think I can probably, I heard what uh, Dr. Wallace um, said about Florida. So I think what I can do is take it from, and what Karina said about Mexico. So I could probably go from Mexico into Texas. Um, You know, once the Black Seminoles arrived, in, in Mexico, they were scouts for the government for 20 years, from 1850 to 1870. And um, 
it wasn't just the Black Seminoles that originally went. They also went with a group of Seminoles who were led by Wildcat. Um, Wildcat died pretty prematurely. Um, I'm not remembering exactly what he died of, but when he passed away, because the Seminoles didn't want to be led by a Black leader, many of them repatriated themselves back to Oklahoma, back to Indian Territory. So the Black Seminoles stayed in Mexico. Um, and like Karina said, you know, while they were there, they were still persecuted and always at risk of being stolen into slavery. So um, Mexico did move them deep into Mexico at one point from Nacimiento to a place called Las Patas um, to help protect them, you know, to move them further into the interior of Mexico to hopefully deter some of these slave catchers who are waiting just across the Texas border. But once the Civil War ended, in 1865, um, the U.S. military approached the Black Seminoles and asked them to come and um, do what they had done for Mexico, essentially, which was to help um, scout for what they called, quote-unquote, hostile natives, um, which was really, you know, people who were living on their own land, and they wanted to clear the way for the white settlers moving into Texas. So they asked the Black Seminoles to come in because they had heard about their bravery. Mm-hmm. So initially, about 10 Black Seminoles crossed the border into Mexico on, of all dates, July 4th, 1870. So instead of going from Texas to Mexico, they came from Mexico to Texas into a place called Eagle Pass, where there was a fort called Fort Duncan. So initially they were stationed there. Um, but within two years, they would move to where I live now, um, to Brackettville, where the fort Fort Clark is located. So, um, you know, for about 44 years, there would be approximately 154 men who would join the military as a detachment and would um, scout for the military, fight numerous skirmishes, and help to um, end what was known as the Texas Indian Wars. Texas Indian Wars. Okay, so now in your family, you are descendant of those folks that that migrated there to Brackettville well over 150 years ago, roughly. So um, how did you learn about your history and your heritage, Wendy? Um, And and Karina's a descendant as well. That's how Karina and I met, actually. Mm -hmm. She's a descendant of, um, we have a muster roll of all the men's names. And... um, so, yes, I'm a descendant of two scouts. One's name is Joe Remo. The other is Joseph Phillips. Um, the way that I learned was um, through the events. You know, we just had our Juneteenth celebration on Saturday. Um, Karina is actually in Mexico right now celebrating Juneteenth. And we have another event called Seminole Days. So, initially, I think with young kids, the way that we were exposed to our history was through these gatherings. We would gather and go with our family. And while we thought we were having fun, you know, and we were, (laughs) we were being exposed to people that looked like us, you know, it's like a big family reunion each year, but you know, our history would be talked about while we were there. You know, we would eat these foods, you know, mostly we eat barbecue, but you know, it's the way the barbecue is made. It's who it's prepared by. So I think initially the way that, we as children, it's, we just come up to these events. We show up with our parents and, and other family members. And then 
we start getting a real education. So we'll ask, why, why Brackville? I know that that was my question. Because here in Brackville, <laughs> um, we make up only 1% of the population. So I always wondered, how did Black people end up here in this little town? So, you know, by asking questions, that was how I started learning the history. And I suspect that's how, you know, I know that my brothers would ask those questions later and my cousins. So, um, you know, and that's, I guess, sort of a rite of passage. It's just a wonder, you know, I'm the only black person in the school. How, why <laughs> are okay. we here? How did we end up here? But, um, yeah. you know, we, now with our events, we are very, um, very deliberate about making sure that we have a historical aspect to it. Um, you know, what's interesting is the lady that called in before Jen, uh -huh. she spoke about Seminole Canyon. And one of the things that we do during our Seminole Day celebration is we go out to Seminole Canyon because um, that's one of the places that the, the scouts scout in. That's why Seminole Canyon is named. It's for the Seminole Negro Indian scouts. So instead of going where the regular tourists go, we have a guy that takes us on a different tour where we walk the path that um, you know, the Seminole Negro Indian South walks. Well, that's so really cool. she's around for Seminole Days, I would love to invite her to come down so that she can experience that with us. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think she would, she would love that for sure. Wendy, thank you. Um, I want to now bring in a perspective uh, from the state of Oklahoma. And of course, we have our guest waiting in the wings, Anastasia Pittman, because the Seminole also have a presence in the state of Oklahoma. There is a Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. And uh, Senator Pittman, again, thank you for joining us and appreciate your patience here waiting through the discussion. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I'm happy to be here among all my friends. Uh, this panelist is very diverse. I'm glad that we are celebrating uh, Juneteenth with a very unique discussion about um, Seminole Maroons and Black Seminoles, and I'm I'm excited about the different terminology that's being used here, because even in Oklahoma, from Florida, we use the term Estelusti, we use, which is just a Muscogee Creek word for Black. Um, so we say Estelusti Seminole. People will tend to use that interchangeably with the terminology Freedmen or black Seminoles. And so it's just, it warms my heart that we are having a discussion about mixed blood natives. Absolutely. And, and that's the reality. So I, I, I'm hoping to be able to shed some light on uh, most of this information that is coming from Florida into Oklahoma, because we did have uh, native Seminoles from Florida matriculate to Oklahoma. And most people will think that the Trail of Tears and the Indian removal was uh, everyone matriculated by foot. They did not. Uh, my ancestors and, and where I get my information from is uh, my late grandmother and also my connection to one of my late chiefs, uh, Enoch Kelly Haney, very prominent uh, state representative, state senator, and and former Seminole chief in Oklahoma, and all of his artwork and and all of his his wisdom 
uh, decided to be open and share some of the painful history in addition to the rich history that uh, their ancestors endured. So so I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity to just answer some questions and, and talk okay. about some of the things that you've heard. Absolutely, Senator Pittman. And, and one of the things we heard earlier was that there's there's not a strong connection apparently now between uh, some of the black Seminoles and, and the, the Seminole nation of Florida, the Seminole tribe of Florida. There's not a connection there, but I know that, that you are working currently to reintroduce black Seminoles into the Seminole nation of Oklahoma. So please tell us more about that work and what prompted you to get started with that. Oh, wow. Uh, we, we established the, um, Anastasia Pittman Research Institute for Indigenous People of Color, uh, because when my grandmother passed away, uh, she left a lot of documents, a lot of uh, patented deeds for land uh, that were issued by allotments uh, for my great-grandfather and his parents. And so the history was passed on through uh, oral history and documents, but we are we're reestablishing the connection because there are so many people in Oklahoma. There are 39 federally recognized tribes. There are over 500 state tribes, but indigenous people of color are often uh, they lack the courage to say publicly that they are native because of the resistance, because of uh, enslaved people coming from that, but. We we are really powerful. Um, the good news is that um, the Seminole Nation in Oklahoma has 14 bands, and in those 14 bands, there are two uh, Estelusi bands uh, or Freedmen bands or Seminole Maroon bands or Indigenous People of Color bands, depending on how you identify uh, yourselves in your lineage those bands have elected officials that serve on the general council with equal footing. Uh, so you have out of 28 general council members, four of them are of uh, Seminole Maroon descent, Estelusti or Freedman members, if you will. Most of uh, our black Seminoles in Oklahoma are very proud uh, we have that rich history with uh, James Cootie Johnson, with John Horse and Wildcat. John Horse established a town in Oklahoma, which still exists today, which we call Wewoka. And even south of Wewoka, uh, we still have Black Seminoles living in Sasakwa, Oklahoma. So what the uh, APRI, Anastasia Pittman Research Institute of Indigenous People of Color, have set out to do is partner with those two bands of the Seminole Nation and start collecting this rich history in partnership with the Oklahoma History Center, the Oklahoma Historical Society, and the First Americans Museum, uh, which resides in Senate District 48. Uh, we worked uh, tirelessly for 10 years to help secure funding, state funding through legislation uh, to secure the First Americans uh, Museum which was previously known as the um, Oklahoma 
or American Indian Cultural Center and Educational Center. So we have lots to talk about, about uh, the two uh, Estelusi bands of the Seminole Nation. They, Those freedmen, those Estelusi members, those black Seminole Maroons, sit equally with 12 other bands that, comp- that comprise of the tribal council. But they are some of the most powerful in the nation because it's the only tribe that has legislative offices held by black Seminoles or by their black members. And so we we talked a little bit about how the Seminole Wars were the longest running conflict uh, that the United States ever had or that they've been engaged in. So those Seminole Wars lasted about 20 years from 1817 to 1842. But we also honor uh, Abraham, uh, who was a principal chief of the Estelusti Seminoles. And he was an interpreter. Um, He spoke six to seven different languages. He was affluent in those languages. He was instrumental in some of the Seminole decision-making uh, during the treaty wars and during the period of removal and and moving folks from Florida into Indian territory, what we today call Oklahoma. But what we don't get to talk about in our history books or in schools is the timelines of the histories and the treaties that were forged and, and, and joined ahead simply because of racism, simply because of land acquisition. We lived among natives. So when you talk about the differences between red blood Seminoles or red Seminoles and black Seminoles, there was no difference. They lived in harmony. They lived in peace. Seminoles, uh, as you heard Dr. Uh, Wallace-Tini share with you earlier, that it was comprised of different groups. In Florida, and so those groups were made up. Um, they band together to become okay. Seminoles. Senator Pittman, I'm sorry we are out of time, but uh, thank you for pointing that out. And I think it really uh, puts a cap on today's show that uh, these people live together in, in relative harmony. These communities, native and uh, black Seminole together. Really fascinating Juneteenth discussion about the history and culture of black Seminoles. I want to thank all of our guests who joined us today. And I hope you'll join us again tomorrow as we hear about concessions facing tribal access to water in Arizona and other findings by an investigative report from ProPublica and High Country News. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Calling all warriors. It's time for self-care. Warriors all deserve a chance to be at their best to protect their loved ones. For more information, 
visit go.cms.gov slash men's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Oh, that's it, Tuelo. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.